Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. This week, a stunning political comeback for Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. He won big across the South. He won from east to west, from Massachusetts to Texas and Oklahoma, in states where he'd spent little or no time at all. After a near disastrous start in the early primary and caucus states, the former vice president is suddenly the Democratic frontrunner. So I'm here to report, we are very much alive! mistake about it. This campaign will send Donald Trump packing. Bernie Sanders now trails Biden in the race for delegates, even though he won California, Super Tuesday's biggest prize. Here's the Vermont senator with supporters in his home state on Tuesday evening as the results rolled in. My guess is that after California is thrown into the hop-up, it's going to be pretty close. We may be up by a few. Biden may be up by a few. Uh, But I think we go forward uh, basically neck and neck. But Super Tuesday was the last stand for Senator Elizabeth Warren. After leading the race in the fall, she failed to win anywhere, including in her home state right here in Massachusetts. Yesterday, she suspended her campaign. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country have gotten short into the stick over and over. So now it's a two-man race. There was also news this week beyond presidential politics, mounting cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. and deadly tornadoes in Tennessee. We'll talk about that later. But first, politics. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Julie Pace. She's the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press. She's also the host of the AP's politics podcast, Ground Game. Julie, great to have you back on one, on point. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And with us from Philadelphia, we have Erin Haynes. She's the editor-at-large for The 19th, a nonprofit news organization reporting at the intersection of gender and politics. Her reporting about 2020 is also being published in The Washington Post. Erin, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Anthony, it's good to be with you. So I want to start uh, with uh, this political conversation, and let's talk about Elizabeth Warren, who dropped out of the race uh, yesterday. We saw her outside of her home in Cambridge just yesterday doing that. Let's listen to a little bit of her. Here she is uh, announcing the end of her presidential campaign in Cambridge yesterday. I was told at the beginning of this whole undertaking that there are two lanes, a progressive lane that Bernie Sanders is the incumbent for and a moderate lane that Joe Biden is the incumbent for. And there's no room for anyone else in this. I thought that wasn't right, but evidently I was wrong. Elizabeth Warren speaking yesterday in Cambridge. Julie, I'm going to start with you. And I just would love to get your general impressions about what went wrong for Elizabeth Warren and what struck you about her getting out of the race yesterday. 
Warren, I think, is one of the most puzzling cases in this 2020 Democratic primary. I remember the first time that I saw her campaign, it was, I think, in January or February of 2019. And I remember going to this event in Iowa and walking out thinking, wow, she's really good, better than I had Hmm. had expected. She had a real connection with voters. Every time you went to a Warren event, you had this enthusiastic crowd. They really just loved the policy prescriptions that she was offering. They loved the personal story that she told. But she really struggled, I think, to turn this uh, campaign into a second gear. You know, you get later in campaigns and you do have to start drawing contrast with your rivals. You have to help voters understand why you really do think you're better than the guy standing next to you. And she resisted that for a long time. It was only in the last couple of weeks that we really saw her draw those sharp contrasts, not just with Michael Bloomberg, uh, but also with Bernie Sanders, who is her uh, ideological counterpart uh, in the in the field. And I think the fact that it took her so long, uh, really left some voters uncertain, you know, why she actually was the best candidate. And then I don't think we could ignore the fact that she is a woman. And uh, Aaron and I know this both well, having talked to voters over the last uh, several months, there was a real concern among Democratic voters about putting up another woman to face Donald Trump. And that is the hangover of Hillary Clinton's defeat. Uh, Voters were open about that. uh, They didn't try to hide it. And it was a a very real sentiment in this race. Boy, Julie, you put your finger on a lot of stuff that I really uh, agree with, I must say. I got to follow her campaign a lot across Iowa, across New Hampshire and South Carolina, and I agree with so much of what you said. But Aaron, I want to come to you and get your quick thoughts uh, about what Julie said and about your own sort of uh, views of what happened to the Warren campaign. Well, I think Julie is exactly right. You know, Elizabeth Warren, was she really was a fighter until the end, as, as we saw yesterday. But that's not something that we always saw on the debate stage. And, and when I was out on the trail talking to voters, a lot of them really liked her. But for them, it was a head versus heart decision, mm-hmm. particularly in a year, you know, where this is really a fear election. And frankly, you know, the word electability has been tossed around so much uh, in, in this primary. And, and what it comes down to, apparently, is is that... Uh, you know, for a lot of voters, that still means choosing an older white man. Yeah, interesting. So um, on Super Tuesday itself, Warren was in Detroit, um, where she basically held a rally and was looking ahead to the Michigan primary next week. And here's what she told voters on Super Tuesday about uh, how they should vote the following week in Michigan. So here's my advice. Cast a vote that will make you proud Cast a vote from your heart and vote for the person you think will make the best president of the United States of America. So, Aaron, there, there's Elizabeth Warren in Detroit on Tuesday night, and, and you were talking about that sort of conflict between what people's heart were telling them and what their head were, were telling them. And, and Warren seemed to be aware of that and was trying to urge people to, to vote their heart. But in the end, that wasn't enough. She was acutely aware of it. And, you know, while she was making the case for who is the best person to be president, and obviously she thought that she was that person, voters are really concerned with who is the person who is best positioned to beat President Donald Trump in November. Over and over again, that is what I hear from Democrats. Uh, her her motto or a couple of, of, of uh, kind of mantras for her campaign, one was uh, – outwork, outlast, outorganize. And the other one was courage over fear. And she was hoping to kind of uh, play a long game in, in this election where, you know, she could 
kind of prove over time that that she was the person who was best positioned to beat uh, Donald Trump and to to govern this country. But in the end, uh, that just was not a case that she was able to make with voters. Mm. And uh, Julie, you you talked about sexism playing a role in in Warren's fall, um, and it seems pretty clear that it did in all kinds of ways. I mean, I heard it from voters, um, and interestingly, I heard it from a lot of women voters in particular who would tell me, I really want to vote for Warren. I like everything about her, but I just don't think my neighbor is ready to vote for for, for a woman. Uh, I heard that again and again across Iowa. I heard it in New Hampshire. And uh, I'm wondering if if that's consistent with what the kind of thing that you heard as well. Oh, absolutely. This this was a, a, a campaign where you heard women really giving voice to those those concerns. It, this wasn't just men who were who were saying this. It was sometimes almost women who were more concerned. And I think that reflects what women see in their own lives. Mm. They they have they know the obstacles that they have run into. They know uh, how hard those glass ceilings are to break. And again, they did watch Hillary Clinton go through this really difficult campaign in 2016. And and so by the end of this, I think Warren was was fighting back against so much. There was so much that was ultimately out of her control. And I thought there was one really telling moment in her press conference after she decided to drop out where she was asked about sexism. And she gave voice to what I think a lot of women feel where she said, look, this is a trap question. Mm-hmm. If I say yes, sexism is a, is a problem here, then people are going to say I'm a whiner. But if I say no, you're going to have all of these women around the country saying, what planet are you from? Of course it yeah. was. And I do think that just so aptly captured how women feel about sexism. Yeah, she said, if you say yes, a bazillion women, uh, I, I love the word bazillion, a bazillion women out there ask you what planet you're living on. Aaron Haynes, you, yeah. this is quite a, a quandary that, that female candidates find themselves in. Absolutely. And I was I was going to say, it's not just Senator Warren, all six of the women who ran this year, you know, a record number of women, the most uh, that have ever run at one time, uh, you know, in a a primary. And yet, you know, you see many different ways that a woman can run for president and all of them uh, virtually being rejected. I mean, I certainly don't want to... uh, obscure that that Hawaii uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard is still in the race, but I mean this is essentially with Elizabeth Warren's exit closing the door on the prospect of electing a woman president this cycle, and I think that it really does raise questions about you know what we mean when we say electability. Hmm. So I'm curious, Julie. I'll come back to you on this. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of Martin Luther King talking about the 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 arc of the universe bends towards justice. I mean, it, did did something get created that folks can build on in this, or is this just absolute frustration that here we are four years later and still at the end of the day it's two old white men running? Look, I think that's certainly going to be a frustration, but I also think there was a lot of progress for women in this cycle. You have to look at the fact that we had debates where there were multiple women on stage, multiple female candidates. That's never happened before. We also saw different models of how to run as a woman. We saw some of these candidates really embrace their roles as mothers, as grandmothers. You know, Elizabeth Warren would talk talk about when she was a young mom having to bring her Aunt B in to come and stay with her and help with childcare. Kirsten Gillibrand has two young kids uh, now. Uh, Kamala Harris talked about being a stepmother. So they really built on what I think Hillary Clinton did in 2016 and and embraced uh, their femininity, embraced motherhood a lot more, talked about it a lot more openly. And so next time around, when women candidates throw their hat in the ring, they will have many more examples to draw from uh, than certainly Hillary Clinton did, who, who didn't have many. 
Yeah. And Aaron Haynes, what do you think about the issues that these women put on the table in this campaign? I mean, are they still are they going to be acknowledged and responded to in some way uh, over the course of the of the race that remains? Well, I would say that they're going to have to be uh, mainly because women, as we know, are the majority of the electorate. Right. And so just because you don't have a woman candidate, uh, you know, really that that's viable, that doesn't mean that that uh, issues uh will not be something that matter to women and they won't be prioritizing. There were uh, several of the women candidates raised issues on the debate stage and on the campaign trail that I don't think would have otherwise been present had had a woman not been on stage from uh, issues of uh, maternal mortality and kind of the racial disparities uh, with that to, uh, you know, how how. Uh, the economy is specifically affecting women. And so I think that uh, for the remaining uh, and probably eventual white male nominee in this race, they will have to speak to uh, how they would govern uh, in a way that speaks to women's lived experiences. Aaron Hayes, Julie Pace, stand by. Lots more to talk about. We're going to talk about what happened on Super Tuesday night. Joe Biden's stunning comeback. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about this week's Democratic presidential primaries. Elizabeth Warren getting out of the race. Joe Biden's big comeback, uh, neck and neck or running just ahead of Bernie Sanders now. I'm here with Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, and Erin Haynes. She's editor-at-large for the 19th, a nonprofit news organization covering gender and politics. And I do want to move on, Julie and Erin, but I want just one more question about Elizabeth Warren and sort of uh, the effect that she leaves behind in this race. Who does she endorse. What do you think, Julie? Yesterday in Cambridge, she says she needs time to think about that, time and space to think about that. But what do you think? Oh, this is such a fascinating question. Really uh, on the one hand, you could see Warren, as we mentioned earlier, you know, she's she's an ideological counterpart to Bernie Sanders. So on the one hand, it would seem very natural for her to endorse him. On the other hand, you know, these two candidates, Warren and Sanders, uh, did not really emerge from this primary uh, as friends. And Warren has expressed a lot of concern about the vitriol she's seen online from Sanders supporters. And I do think it's important to note when you look at polling and when you look at you know our AP vote cast results coming 
out of these primaries, a lot of Warren supporters see Biden as their second choice. So does she go with where some of her supporters are? I, I think the next couple of days as she makes this decision is just going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. How do, Aaron, how do you see this uh, shaking out, this difficult decision, this really interesting uh, debate that Warren has to engage with herself, essentially? I think I think it is really interesting, particularly uh, because, you know, the whole can a woman win uh, conversation resulted in a controversy between Senator Sanders and Senator Warren that erupted on the debate stage uh, earlier this year, uh, you know, where um, Senator Warren said that that Senator Sanders had had told her that that he didn't think a woman can win. And then he denied saying that. So literally, you know, uh, accusing her of being a liar on national television. I think, you know, that may be something that, that could be on her mind as she's weighing uh, what to do in terms of an endorsement, or does she do what she did in 2016 and just, uh, you know, wait until there's a nominee to, to back that person? I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what she does, but but I think it does point to uh, the reality that she does, despite the fact that she's no longer going to be in the race, she will absolutely still be a factor and still wields a considerable amount of power in shaping this primary. It's interesting because during the race, of course, she criticized both of them in different ways. I mean, she was pretty tough on Biden um, go- talking about him not being right for this moment and suggesting that without big ideas to excite voters, Democrats lose. She was also critical of Sanders, especially toward the end, as being having the big ideas, but no record uh, of making those big ideas a reality. So it's going to be really, really um, interesting to watch. I want to move on because obviously the big story out of Super Tuesday was this stunning comeback for Joe Biden. Um, Aaron, I'll start with you on this. I mean, was Super Tuesday really just about this big movement toward Joe Biden or, 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 or is there something more complicated there to unpack? Well, I think the main thing that Super Tuesday was about was the incredible power of black voters uh, in shaping this primary. There is no path to the nomination this year uh, without support of black voters. And, and Joe Biden very clearly uh, ran away with that on Super Tuesday. And, and you know, I think, you know, he had always said that that, that was that was his strength. He's got a 50 year track record with black voters. And, and you know, they have been central to his political success and survival uh, for, for decades. And, and I think that that, that played out on, uh, on Super Tuesday. I mean, it's the party's most loyal constituency, and they, they sent a really strong message. But they also were joined by voters from swing districts in like Minnesota, Virginia, and Texas. And so I think he also made the case for the kind of coalition that I think Democrats uh, argue they're going to need to make the case for ousting an incumbent president and this incumbent president in particular. So, Aaron, I want to stick with you because I know you've done a, a lot of reporting in the South. But what do we need to understand or, or what is frequently not understood, I guess, about black support for Joe Biden and why it is so strong? Well, I think obviously the uh, former vice president's relationship to the country's first black president, Barack Obama, is something that uh, a lot of voters say motivated them mm-hmm. uh, in, in supporting him in trusting him in feeling familiar with him. Uh, that, that that played a role, to be sure. Um, but also, like I said, I mean, this is somebody who has experience 
campaigning uh, with black voters, uh, being in relationship uh, with black folks. I think you saw it in, in his surrogates. I mean, he has, I think now about two dozen congressional black caucus members backing him, several black mayors backing him. And those people represent millions of voters who, again, are singularly focused on ousting President Trump in November and who really kind of see the stakes uh, of, of this election in terms around race and feel that uh, the former vice president is the person that, that kind of best understands that and, and can speak to that. Julie, um, to you on this, I mean, it really was a stunning turnaround. I mean, uh, Joe Biden was given up for, uh, for for dead after New Hampshire, after uh, Iowa. He recovered a little bit in Nevada. But um, as Aaron has been saying, not until he got to South Carolina and into the South did his campaign come roaring back. What, what, do you, what did you see in that? Well, this is my fourth presidential campaign, and I've truly never seen anything like the three days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Yeah, astonishing. Uh, you know, oh. It was really astonishing. And, and Joe Biden's campaign acknowledges that as well. They were certainly hoping that South Carolina would be the spark they needed, but I don't think they expected how quickly this, this would all move. I think it does go to show that uh, name recognition, deep relationships built over decades uh, really can help. I mean, in a lot of these Super Tuesday states, Joe Biden did not have a campaign infrastructure. In Virginia, Michael Bloomberg spent $12 million on the air. Joe Biden spent less than 300000 mm. I mean, the gap between that is astounding. But for taking Virginia as an example, voters knew him there. To Aaron's point, they knew him as vice president. Black voters saw him being willing to serve as number two to the first black president. That really resonated. And then the other thing I would say is that you saw Democratic voters for, for so many of the past months just being really uncertain about which way to go. They want to beat Donald Trump. They want to have some sense of of who is best to do that. And I think when they saw Biden win in South Carolina and black voters stand by him and then importantly, Buttigieg and Klobuchar get out of the race and endorse him. Beto O'Rourke standing on stage with him in in Texas. I think it was a signal to voters in Super Tuesday. Okay, this is who the Democratic Party is going to rally around, uh, both to beat Trump and then also to try to block out Bernie Sanders, who is seen by a lot of Democrats as a really risky choice in November. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that uh, he did well in states where he barely set foot. You know, I'm talking to you from Boston. He never set foot in Massachusetts. And and we saw polling, in fact, here at WB. You are. We did a poll just last week uh, before Super Tuesday. And there, of course, it was the contest here was, was thought to be between Elizabeth Warren uh, and Bernie Sanders. It looked like Sanders had the edge. Biden wasn't even in the conversation a week ago. And he carried Massachusetts without even uh, campaigning in Massachusetts. So it's just a it, it was just an indication of, of, of what you're talking about, Julie. It's, re- it's really something. I want to hear um, uh, from a couple of um, listeners uh, from the, who, who've called in and recorded with us. So Nancy from Columbia, Maryland, called us with a question about the Super Tuesday results. She said she has no enthous- enthusiasm for either of the two leading Democratic presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. I was hoping for someone young, energetic, possibly of color, a female, and unfortunately, those are no longer viable candidates. So I'm not really sure how we got to this point other than the rest of my fellow Democrats must feel that these two are the only viable options to beat Donald Trump, but I'm not so sure I agree. 
And a listener with some familiar traits called us uh, uh, called us from Vermont to share his thoughts on how Americans feel about Joe Biden. Hi, this is Jim. I'm 74 years old. I'm from Brooklyn, and I'm calling from my cabin up in Vermont, where I've lived since 1970. Sound familiar? My question is, why, despite the fact that I support Bernie almost 100%, that I feel so relieved with, found out that Joe Biden did so good down in South Carolina? Well, the answer to that question is because for the first time in a long time, I thought that maybe, just maybe, this country could get back to being normal again. I think that's what the American people want more than anything is for things to be normal again. So, Julie, what do you think? Uh, vote for Biden was an overwhelming desire for Americans to have things be normal again. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in those in those great comments. I, I do think that Biden is uh, trying to speak to uh, to people like that gentleman from Vermont. Uh, he is saying, "Look, we have been through four years uh, that have been really difficult on this country and have been tumultuous, and we sort of wake up every day and it's a little uncertain where things are going." And he says, "I'm not going to do that to you. You know what you get with me. This is turning back the clock in a lot of ways. This is getting back to a, a, a more." predictable uh, pace uh, of life in Washington. Sometimes you won't even have to think about the president. I will I will lead, uh, you know, with a with a with a sense of calm uh, and competence here. And he's really in, in doing that. He's not only trying to draw a contrast with Donald Trump. He's also trying to draw a contrast with Bernie Sanders, who, of course, is campaigning on big transformational change. He wants to come to Washington and and overhaul the health care system. He wants to overhaul higher education, overhaul economic systems. And, and what Biden is trying to say is, hey, America, you don't want to go through that again. We want to we want to just get back to a normal place. Whether that energizes Democrats, I think, is uh, still a little bit uncertain, particularly young voters who don't think that going backwards is the right way. Uh, I think that Biden will have to try to overcome that uh, in the next several weeks. What do you think, Aaron Haynes? Uh, it looks like we've got sort of the restoration uh, versus the political revolution. I mean, both seem risky to me in a way, because it seems like if recent years have taught us anything, It's like the big shakeup is what wins. Uh, On the other hand, clearly lots of Democrats are concerned about Bernie's call for a revolution, even though it has to be said he's very much in this race and he's got a lot of folks still behind him. But what do you think about this, (laughs) this contrast between these two right now? That is that is absolutely the contrast revolution versus a reset. And I think, uh, you know, hearing from hearing from that voter who is is you know from Vermont and 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 likes Bernie Sanders. He's concerned about you know what can get done, you know, uh, and 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 what need you know what this particular moment in our politics calls for. But you know the woman who who called in, uh, you know, talking about her lack of enthusiasm and and really kind of sounding disappointed, uh, hoping saying that she was hoping for a younger person, a, a person of color or a woman uh, that she would be able to vote for. You know what I'm hearing is that uh, women increasingly are now calling for. Uh, one or all of those qualities on on a ticket. Uh, you know, there's never been a woman vice president either, and so you know that is something that could energize uh, women for sure. If, if you see uh, a woman or a woman of color uh, on the ticket, that is that is uh, certainly something that could that could boost enthusiasm and you know and kind of. Uh, possibly spark the record turnout that that uh, Democrats know that they're they're going to need uh, to to win in November. And another thing, you know, that I thought was interesting, uh, just just the idea um, 
I think this happened around women, but it's also happening kind of around uh, Bernie Sanders and the conversation about him being a socialist uh, to hear voters say, you know, well, it's not that I have a problem with this. It's my neighbor. It's somebody in another state that I don't know. Like, I wonder what they would do, uh, you know, you know, and if they would support this person, if they find that person electable. And so, you know, I think that 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 only further has has bolstered the case uh, for the former vice president, uh, for those who may be open to Senator Sanders's ideas, but but are are wondering, you know, how um, how plausible they they're going to be in this election. Hmm. Well, let's hear from Senator Bernie Sanders. Here he is uh, making his pitch to voters in his home state of Vermont uh, the night of Super Tuesday. We are putting together an unprecedented grassroots, multi generational, multi racial movement. It is a movement which speaks to the working families of this country who are sick and tired of working longer hours for low wages and seeing all new income and wealth going to the top 1%. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders speaking in Vermont uh, the night of Super Tuesday. Um, And Julie, we shouldn't... uh we shouldn't discount the fact that Bernie Sanders is still very much in this race. He trails Biden in total delegates, uh, but not by much. Lots more, many more primaries to come. But his argument that he can mobilize this new mass of young progressives, to what extent has that been borne out so far? The problem for Sanders is that that type of coalition that he is describing is not the type of coalition that is voting for him right now. Yes, he does lead with young voters, according to the states that have that have voted thus far. But young voters are not showing up in particularly high numbers. He has shown strength with Latino voters, and that's an incredibly important part of the Democratic electorate. But he is really struggling with black voters. Uh, black voters, uh, you know, really over the age of about thirty, are siding with with Joe Biden. And it's younger black voters who are still with uh, Sanders in larger numbers. But he's struggling with uh, with older voters, uh, with women, uh, with voters in the in the suburbs, with higher educated voters. All of these are groups that a Democratic nominee will need. Uh, again, Joe Biden's problem is young voters. He will have to improve his coalition there. But but Sanders has has struggled to expand his his base. And, and again, there's just this disconnect between the, the type of coalition he describes in his rhetoric and what we're actually seeing uh, from the primaries thus far. Yeah. And Aaron Haynes, to that point, um, on Super Tuesday night, we saw big surges in voter turnout in middle class and affluent suburbs. Um, I think I read that turnout was up by 76 percent in the Virginia suburbs around Washington, uh, Richmond, parts of uh, of Norfolk. So that speaks to a kind of uh, a Biden voter, much more than a Sanders voter that seemed to be energized on Super Tuesday night. Is, 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 was that your read? That was my read. And and these, to, to Julie's point, you know, the categories that she mentioned, I mean, these are among the more loyal and consistent voters in an election. Uh, you know, certainly Senator Sanders has gotten a, a, a lot of support from younger voters, but they are, they tend not to be as reliable as, as those older voters and especially older voters of color who, who will show up to vote uh, from everything from president on down, you know, in every election. And so, you know, I do think that that, that is a concern. Uh, Senator Sanders does still have to prove uh, that he can uh, get black support. Uh, it was certainly notable um, that he uh, decided to focus on Michigan as opposed to, uh, you know, going to Mississippi as he had planned to do. Thirty-seven uh, percent of the electorate there is is black. 
uh, of the population there is black. And so, you know, not choosing not to go to Mississippi, you know, may send a signal that that maybe uh, Senator Sanders is is not uh, doing all the things that he needs to do to, to, to connect directly with black voters, not to say that, that being in Michigan and being on the ground there is not important and is not going to reach a significant amount of black voters as well. But but uh, but, but really, he's going to have to show how his message is, is speaking uh, more specifically to a black agenda uh, that, that black voters can can see where they fit into to, to possibly his candidacy. Listeners, we're talking about a big week in the news with a special focus on Super Tuesday and where the Democratic uh, presidential primary stands right now after the stunning comeback of Joe Biden. Um, We're going to be back. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Three decades ago, Sterling Cuneo was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country, but it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about a big week in the news, including the Democratic presidential primary, Joe Biden's stunning uh, comeback. I'm joined by Julie Pace. She's Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press and Aaron Hayes, editor at large at the 19th. And um, let's hear a little bit of tape because, Julie and Aaron, I want to talk a little bit about um, the impact that these endorsements had. Multiple candidates who had dropped out of the presidential primary uh, ended up endorsing Joe Biden. Here's a little bit of that sound. I've always believed that defeating Donald Trump starts with uniting behind the candidate with the best shot to do it. And after yesterday's vote, it is clear that candidate is my friend and a great American, Joe Biden. So what I want all of you to do is vote for Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, el próximo presidente de los Estados Unidos, Joe Biden. Let's do it for Joe. I'm delighted to endorse and support Joe Biden for president. All right. That was uh, Michael Bloomberg, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke and uh, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Um, Julie, I mean, it's funny over over the years of doing political reporting, I, I, I always end up sort of saying the same thing about political endorsements. And it's like, yeah, you know, they generally don't mean that much. But um, it, this week put so much kind of conventional political thinking on its head. Uh, I think these endorsements obviously made a huge difference. What did you think? I I really think they did. And I think it's about the speed at which they all came together. These were a series of endorsements, one after another, by a pretty wide ranging group of of candidates from a diverse array of states uh, who all made the same decision. They felt like Bernie Sanders is a risk to the Democratic Party and they needed to rally behind one more moderate uh, contender. And they all chose Joe Biden. And in a lot of ways, uh, it's a bit of a selfless decision for some of these candidates. Yes, they had 
difficult paths ahead of them. Uh, but many of them still had money in the bank that they could have uh, continued uh, to run on. Many of them had opportunities to to win. Amy Klobuchar says that her campaign had polling saying that she could win in Minnesota, which was a Super Tuesday state. Instead, she ind- dropped out, endorsed Joe Biden, and and really, arguably, I think did help him uh, pull that state out. So again, I think it was the fact that you just had so many people making the same decision so quickly. It just it really added to this sense of of momentum. And momentum can't be underestimated in politics, especially when we live in this kind of nationalized political moment where voters across the country are kind of watching the same things. It's it's no longer really a state by state decision. It really is a, a national electorate right now. Hmm. Aaron Haynes, uh, same question to you. Um, what did you make of those endorsements and the speed at which they came and the effect that they apparently had? Uh, they definitely had a tremendous effect. And I just I just want to back up uh, to before Super Tuesday to the endorsement that really kicked off uh, the, the momentum for Joe Biden. And that was the endorsement of uh, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. Good point. Uh, who yeah. had thought about, you know, possibly sitting out or, or not making his vote public, but decided uh, in the 11th hour as as voters in South Carolina were kind of hand wringing and, and undecided uh, going into that uh Saturday contest, you know, for him to come out and make the emotional kind of full throated embrace of 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 uh, Vice President Biden uh, really put him over the top in a big way in South Carolina. And then you come out of that and you have that that remarkable 72 hours. You know, it really just kind of, um, you know, the former vice president has pitched himself as this unity candidate who can bring together the party and the country. And you just saw that. Uh, seeming to happen uh, with with all of these candidates kind of lining up behind him. And, you know, the candidates, maybe like a lot of Democratic voters, you know, who are saying that their priority is beating President Donald Trump. And if and if they feel that 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 is their priority as well, then, you know, this is bigger than their campaign. And 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 it makes sense for them to 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 back a Joe Biden if that is the person who they see uh, is as best positioned to do that. Then I think that that does send a message to voters. I want to read a couple of um, comments from our listeners. Here's a comment from our website. A policy watcher writes, Super Tuesday showed that Bernie's fabled first-time voters are indeed just a fable. They did not manifest. Uh, and here's a listener from Facebook. Uh, David Wattinger writes, Biden is a lot like Clinton, but worse in almost every measurable way. On issue after issue, Biden has consistently been to the right of Clinton throughout his 50-year political career. He has a record of advocating cuts to Social Security and Medicare. That probably needs some context. He helped write the 1994 crime bill and uh, led to an explosion in mass incarcerations. He played a critical role in passing the 2005 bankruptcy bill that stripped bankruptcy protection from some of the most vulnerable vulnerable people. Biden also supported the Iraq uh, war. So with those comments in mind, um, I'll I'll come back to you, Julie. Is Joe Biden really the Democrats' best bet? And I mean, I guess what I'm asking, in other words, make the case that he is the Democrats' (laughs) best bet at this point. Not that I'm asking you to be (laughs) a partisan, but you understand where I'm coming from. I think it's, I do, I do. Look, I think it's really important to note that we are now heading into a long primary fight between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. As quickly as this contest has moved in the last couple of days, uh, I think things are going to slow down a bit. We've got a lot of big states on March 10th, March 17th. 
many states to come. And I think you're going to see these two men in a really, uh, you know, a, a, a head-to-head battle for, for delegates uh, in the lead up to the convention. And both of them have a case to make. Uh, you know, Joe Biden makes the case that uh, he can pull together the voters that Democrats need, particularly as we've been talking about black voters, uh, older voters who are more reliable, and that he can pull together those women in the suburbs who started to move toward Democrats in 2018 because they don't like Trump's tone and his rhetoric, that he can keep them in the Democratic constituency. Bernie Sanders will say, hey, we tried that against Trump. That Mm -hmm. is the model from Hillary Clinton in 2016. And look how that worked. We need to try something new. We need to try to energize young voters. We need to to have people excited to come out, mobilized to come out and not just bank on Democrats' dislike uh, of Donald Trump. We have to give them something more than that. So I think you're going to hear these two arguments uh, being made over the next couple of weeks. And I think we truly don't know uh, how a head-to-head contest between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders will play out uh, in the in the months to come. Aaron Haynes, how do you think that's going to play out? Because that's, I mean, what I'm struck by is how quickly, how lightning fast uh, Joe Biden's fate uh, sort of turned, you know, from 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 near dead to, to, to front runner. And I'm wondering, you know, can it turn the other way just as just as quickly? I mean, I'm thinking of the next debate, which isn't far away. His debate performances have been wobbly over the months. I mean, can you imagine a scenario where suddenly everyone is like, oh, my God, uh, that former front runner doesn't look so much like a front runner right now? Well, I think to Julie's point, it is going to be a long slog. And, you know, uh, Representative Clyburn said, you know, that Biden does uh, have some things that he's going to need to do to tighten up his campaign. You know, he's going to have to have uh, pretty good debate performances, to your point. He's going to need to continue to be able to successfully fundraise something that he kind of stumbled with uh, earlier on. Uh, but, you know, Senator Sanders, uh, you know, saying that, that, uh, expanding the electorate is, is something that, that the Democratic Party also needs to focus on. I think that's true regardless of, of who the nominee is, uh, engaging so many of, of these, I would say, uh, disaffected voters, um, who maybe either didn't show up in, in 2016 or made, a, you know, a different choice and, you know, people who voted for, um, you know, voted for President Trump who, who were traditionally Democrats, like, uh, expanding the electorate to, to get those folks, uh, to turn out for, for the nominee is something that's going to happen, uh, have to happen regardless of who the nominee is. But also, you know, uh, focusing on the, the down ticket races too, particularly Congress, uh, you know, because you, whoever is, is the nominee, their plans do not get enacted, you know, unless they are able to, to get a Congress that is going to cooperate with them. And so, uh, you know, the candidate that can also, uh, help those candidates, uh, who, who are on, are also going to be on the ballot in November is going to be key. I'm going to have to let you uh, both go in just about a minute. But, Julie Pace, I wanted to come to you uh, with one uh, quick thought on the continuing spread of the coronavirus and news out of Washington. We know that President Trump signed a, an $8 billion authorization bill for more funding uh, for to, to combat the coronavirus um, epidemic. Uh, what's going on down there? And, 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 and I'm particularly interested in his planned visit to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, which he apparently canceled? What's going on? 
He did. He canceled this uh, pretty abruptly. Trump was supposed to head to the CDC uh, to meet with researchers, other officials down there. Uh, he said that there was a reported case of coronavirus at the CDC. That person ultimately tested negative, uh, but it all unfolded in a way that uh, made it impossible for him to go. But he says he is still hoping uh, to get to the CDC in the coming days. Uh, he did sign, as you mentioned, that $8 billion uh, package uh, for coronavirus recovery. But this is an issue that is is going to weigh on the president uh, and really consume a lot of his time uh, for the foreseeable future. All right. Julie Pace, uh, the Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Aaron Haynes, the editor at large for the 19th. Great to have you as well, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. For the time that remains, we're going to turn our attention now to Tennessee, where tornadoes early Tuesday morning killed at least 24 people across the middle part of the state. Joining us from Nashville is Emily uh, Siner. She's the news director for Nashville Public Radio. And Emily, thanks so much for being with us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. So will you give us uh, a sense of the situation? How does how is Tennessee doing, uh, especially where this swath of tornadoes hit? What's going on? What's the situation on the ground? It's been a very exhausting and, and startling week. We had a tornado or several tornadoes hit Middle Tennessee uh, super early on Tuesday morning. Um, many people, when they went to bed, the, the radar wasn't showing tornadoes, so we got alerts in the middle of the night and woke up. And um, and then by morning, the fatality count started rising, so there have been 24 deaths reported. Um, the majority of those, 18, are in Putnam County, which is about an hour and a half east of Nashville uh, in an area around a city called Cookville. In Nashville itself, there are hundreds of homes that have been destroyed um, more than a thousand that were affected, and two hundred commercial structures that were damaged. And we haven't even begun tallying the financial damage. We know that there, there's a small airport here that's reporting ninety million dollars in damage, and a university that's reporting twenty million dollars. So once those numbers come in, and you add in the homes, like it's just an sort of catastrophic event. Yeah, and do we know uh, about the numbers of people still missing? Is anyone still missing? From what I can tell this morning, everyone has been accounted for. Um, in Putnam County, where there's the highest number of fatalities, there were still dozens of people missing the day after, and that number has been going down slowly. Um, it got to zero, and then they they were trying to track down a few more people. But I think as of right now, it is back down to zero, which is great news, um, which means that the fatality count should be steady. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're we're Glad to see that kind of that part of it done. Absolutely. And Emily, of course, we mentioned this, um, these tornadoes struck on Super Tuesday. I'm going to hear from a voter. We're going to hear from a voter here. This is Jennifer Eskew. She got about two hours of sleep because of the tornadoes that ripped through Nashville early Tuesday morning, but says that she still showed up to vote. Everyone had a story about being up all night, having damage to their house um, and still figuring out where they were supposed to go to vote. Um, and they did it and they came and we all waited in line for at least an hour. So that was really encouraging. So Emily Siner, talk a little bit about that, about the effect that this had uh, on the vote. I mean, a lot of the places that were damaged were voter precincts. So there were more than 20 in Nashville that were too damaged or even destroyed to to be a voting precinct. Um, they started creating these super sites where they would merge several sites together and they kept a few of those open till 10, so a few hours later than normal. Um, you know, it may have stopped some people from voting, but I think it also 
brought a lot of pride and and got people to come out because they wanted to show that this is still a really important thing to do. So according to unofficial results from from the county in in Nashville, um, they were expecting about 110,000 people to vote on Election Day. And there were 109,000 ballots cast. So really close. Um, Lots of people who just wanted to show that this was something that they would do even in the midst of a disaster. Mm. So we're three days after this disaster. What's it like to drive around your home city of Nashville? Um, Are are there parts of it that are that are pretty unrecognizable? Give us a sort of visual picture of of, of what it's like today. Yeah. Tornadoes are really surreal. I had never experienced a place where it's been like super hard hit by tornadoes. And it's honestly shocking for me to see these buildings that you, you know, you know what they're supposed to look like or these these businesses that you love and they're just kind of reduced to rubble or their roofs are blown off. Like, and, and there'll be one block that's just totally fine and then another one that's been completely hit and looks like it's mangled. It's also, I think, really emotional to report on because this is our, our neighborhood and our community. And so um, seeing all these people in our community who are dealing with this has been really hard. And there are people in the newsroom who are dealing with damage to their own homes. So, you know, I think on one hand, that's been very devastating. Um, on the other, there's also this sense that Nashville is is going to rebuild. I mean, it's actually almost the 10-year anniversary of a flood that hit Middle Tennessee in 2010, which was also completely devastating and in some ways even more wi- widespread. And um, there was a sense then that Nashville took care of itself. It raised money. It went out and got its hands dirty and people built like rebuilt the city. And I think that ethos is really strong right now. There's a strong sense of like, we're everyone's going to volunteer this weekend. And um, I was out in North Nashville yesterday and people were out with chainsaws and trash bags and um, little by little kind of the recovery is starting. All right. Well, Emily Siner, uh, news director at Nashville Public Radio, thanks so much for joining us today and best of luck to you and everyone there in Nashville. We wish you all a a sort of speedy rebuild of your city, understanding that a lot of people are probably going to be reeling for some time because of that disaster. But thanks so much, Emily, for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. And listeners, you can continue the conversation. You can get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. This program is made possible by a fantastically talented and calm group of producers. They include Anna Bauman, Melissa Egan, uh, Eileen Amata, Brittany Knott, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, Hillary McQuilkin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller. We had help today from Liam Knox, Carolyn Love, and Bradley Noble. I'm Anthony Brooks. Have a great weekend. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or environmental social governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. 
As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 